and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I'm your host each week, now six years in 300 plus episodes where Franklin Covey, I think very abundantly, uh, allows me, encourages me, pollinates the idea that we should be living many of the principles that Dr. Covey taught in his many years as one of the foremost thought leaders and influencers worldwide on the topic of leadership. Each week, twice on Tuesday and Friday, we turn our spotlight Take our platform, the wattage behind the global brand that is the most trusted leadership firm in the world, Franklin Covey, and interview people from all different walks of life that have expertise on this broad but vital topic we call leadership. Some weeks we might talk about how to build a great culture, how to execute on your top priorities, how to build a culture that is both high trust and focused on achieving results that also becomes what Franklin Covey calls a workplace of choice for achievers with heart. We're honored to have interviewed some of the greatest minds in leadership, and today we add to that list with an interview on a topic that's especially near and dear to my heart as the parent, the father of three young boys. My wife, Stephanie, and I are continuing to suffer, thrive through parenting. We have three sons, as you probably know, that are nine 12 and 13, and we're obviously very interested in topics on how we become better leaders in our home. Today our guest is the doctor. Her name is Dr. Jean Twangy, kind of like a guitar, Twangy, and she's authored numerous books around how to be a better leader, how to build connection with different generations. She has a new book out called Generations. The book that I'm most fond of is a previous release called iGen. Here's the tagline, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. We're gonna tackle back between a variety of her learnings, her teachings, and her books today. Dr. Twangy, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, great to be here. Hey, I'm so excited to use my family and my own children as the uh, essential topic for today's podcast. My guess is that many people listening um, are both leading and they're parenting. Perhaps they are supervising, a term that you use ad- often in the book, adulting. <laughs> I'm sure there are many people on this uh, podcast listening in that are caregiving, perhaps their grandparents, an- a- a- aunts, uncles, nieces, relatives, or perhaps they're leaders that don't have children or their children have launched, and they might want to be a little more sympathetic, a little empathetic to what the leaders in their organization, what their own employees are going through as we raise a new generation of people. Before we get into the different generations and some of my questions, Doctor, would you rewind a couple of decades ago, talk a little bit about your journey, how you've come to author seven books, and why you're so passionate about this topic in particular? Well, I first started getting interested in generational differences as a college undergraduate when I noticed that when I had some of my peers fill out a psychology questionnaire, their responses in terms of their personalities were very different from about 20 years before in the 1970s, particularly for women around things like saying they were assertive or that they had leadership abilities. And then as um, I went to grad school, I found out that actually wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't just My peers um, at the University of Chicago found the same thing in a sample at the University of Michigan where I went to grad school and then made it more national with a big meta-analysis and found, sure enough, there was a very, very steady increase 
in uh, women identifying with those personality traits, which made perfect sense from a generational point of view, because that's what happened over that time is that more women entered leadership roles and careers. So that kind of got me started uh, thinking about cultural change and thinking about generational differences. And what's been fun about it is it's such a broad topic. You can look at everything. You can look at behaviors and attitudes and how people spend their time and their attitudes toward work, all from a generational perspective. And also because we live in the age of big data and my most recent book, Generations, I drew from 24 databases, including 39 million people. And most of those surveys go back decades. So it's really amazing to have that kind of data to play with to try to find out how are the generations really different. Gene, let's level set for the rest of our conversation. I think everybody has a colloquial use of the generations, boomers and traditionalists and X's and Y's, and you coined a phrase, yeah. iGen, in your previous book. Would you kind of just put everybody in the same level playing field? What are kind of the normal nomenclature that we talk about in terms of all the generations? What are the name or names being referred to as the new generation so we can call things by the same name? Sure. Um, and there's there's debate about certain generational names and exactly where the birth year cutoff should be. Um, you know, those are the details. We all agree that things have changed and that that's affected people. So um, here's the here's the names and cutoffs that I relied on in generations. So the silent generation is those born 1925 to 1945. A little bit of a misnomer because they were actually at the forefront of a lot of changes, say the civil rights movement, the feminist movement. The baby boomers, 1946 to 1964. So the hippies of the 60s and the yuppies of the 80s, still many of our leaders. Uh, then we have Generation X. So the middle child of generations, it's my generation. And that's those born 1965 to 1979. Millennials born 1980 to 1994, shaped by uh, the rise of individualism. And then iGen or Gen Z seems to be the accepted name now for those born 1995 to 2012. And they are the first generation to spend their entire adolescence in the age of the smartphone. And then the post-Gen Z generation, some call them alphas. And I call them polars after melting polar ice caps and political polarization. So that's those born 2013 to, and we're not sure of the end cutoff date till we have more data, but maybe 2029, roughly, something like that. Um, so even though we have a little bit of disagreement around the edges with some of those things, there's a fair amount of agreement on those labels and roughly those birth year cutoffs. Gene, thank you for that. One of the insights I've taken from reading your books is a really shocking disparity in how, say, you and I spent our time growing up, time on volunteering, time on paid work, homework, and how this current generation that isn't yet in the workforce formally, but starting to be, certainly Gen Z and such, remind us what the different, the, some of the big differences are on how you and I spent our time growing up and how the current generation, including those that are in the workforce right now, spend their time. Yeah, yeah, and this, this is really important for managers because the oldest of Gen Z are now 28. So this is gonna be most of your new hires, young employees, even in the professions, it's starting to be, it's gonna be Gen Z instead of millennials. So 
Gen Z spent their time outside of school in a fundamentally different way in their middle school and high school years compared to previous generations at the same age. So they spent a lot more time on the internet and social media and on screens and a lot less time with their friends in person. There's been a huge decline in teens just hanging out with each other or going out with their friends and without their parents or you know, going to the movies or going to the mall or riding around in cars, all the things that teens historically did, Gen Z was a lot less likely to do them. And those declines um, started with millennials, but they were pretty gradual until you get to the transition between millennials and Gen Z. And for high school samples, it's around 2012 or so, it starts to really decline. And that's right around the time most Americans owned a smartphone, also when social media moved from optional to almost mandatory among high school students. So that's one of the biggest changes. The other really big change has to do with people taking longer to grow up. And so this started with millennials, but it, it accelerated with Gen Z, that as teens, they were less likely than previous generations to have their driver's license, to go out on dates, to drink alcohol, to work at a paid job. So some people have tried to label those as, oh, them being more virtuous or um, you know, just taking fewer risks. And there, there's some of that too, but it's not all good or all bad. What brings those trends all together, what unifies them is that teens and young adults are just taking longer to grow up. And that's what happens when people live longer and healthcare is better and education takes longer to finish. It's a somewhat natural process. But it really does mean that Gen Z's experiences were very different from especially Gen Xers and boomers, you know, at that same age. Their, their experience in middle school and high school was just fundamentally different. Talk a little bit about this, I guess, conscious decision of a generation to postpone what you might call growing up, postpone adulthood. There is a phrase we've heard as adulting, and I never thought there was an option, but in, in the current demographic, right. the generation is almost a choice now. I'm not ready to grow up. Or I'm going to adult and then I'm gonna stop adulting. I'm gonna go back to adult and I'm gonna not adult. Right. Talk about right. that and why should people perhaps my age, Gen Xers and maybe boomers, be aware of that as they're now leading and onboarding this generation into the workplace? Yeah, so that, that's a good thing to be aware of that the word adult is now a verb. Please don't make me adult today or I'm done adulting today. Um, and it is a little perplexing. Now, how exactly does that work? Do you go back to being a child? Um, but there, there is just a reluctance and an anxiety around doing adult things. And that began um, with millennials, maybe a little with Gen X. And then it's really come to fruition with Gen Z that some of these things the previous generation kind of took for granted are more challenging. And I think that's that's something that takes getting used to that, for example, 22 year olds just haven't had the same life experiences now than they did before. They have had less experiences being fewer experiences being independent. They don't have as much experience making decisions. They don't have as much of that kind of real world hands on experience and they have that reluctance to 
grow up. And it is good to keep in mind that that's part of a bigger cultural story, that it's not just even teens and young adults here. The slow life strategy is also the reason why middle-aged people look and feel younger than their parents and grandparents did at the same age. You know, it's 60 is the new 50. It's all part of the same big cultural trend. Gene, I'm going to guess maybe like you, we're about the same age, certainly the same generation, born in 68. On my 16th birthday, I was second in line at the driver's license bureau. I had my license right. by 7.20 right. in the morning. Um, right. I moved out within days of graduating from high school. Not because I wanted to flee my parents, I just wanted to be an adult and wanted my own apartment. I was working full time and going to school yeah. full time. This is very rare. And now, it seems like obviously with different cultural uh, availability of, of Uber and, and Uber Eats and being able to, you know, do all kinds of different things now as a teen, we don't have the same social pressures, but do you see it swinging back? Do you see, do you see the slow growing up process as being even, I don't wanna say exacerbated, because I don't, I don't wanna put a value judgment on it, but tell me what the indicators show. Is life gonna be less like when you and I grew up in terms of wanting to adult <laughs> earlier, or do you see it becoming um, more like a tripling down of of people's slow growth even slowing down? I think it's going to continue. And, you know, for one thing, we know it's not Uber um, because, first of all, you have to be 18 to use Uber. Um, and we're talking about getting a driver's license. We're talking more about 16-year-olds. Plus, the same downward trend in getting a driver's license among high school seniors shows up in very rural areas where Uber is not as accessible. Uh, so, Overall, I think it really is due to the slow life strategy. And just to set the stage here, so this is a, a, a theory, a rubric, which is really helpful for thinking about how people live, that at times and places where people live longer, when healthcare is better and when education takes longer to finish, say more people are going to college, parents tend to make the choice to have fewer children and nurture them more carefully. So that's in contrast to the fast life strategy that tends to happen um, when lifespans are shorter, um, when more people have the opportunity economically to uh, be independent at the age of 18, when people have bigger families and thus, you know, kids learn independence earlier, either because they're taking care of younger siblings or because their parents just can't keep track of them all. Um, and none of those indicators are going to change anytime soon. Um, Families are smaller, and it doesn't look like that's going to change. The birth rate keeps going down. Um, although, you know, COVID has put a dent in this to an extent, life expectancy is still very high. Back in the 1930s, life expectancy was about 65, and now it's pushing 80, and it's, it's a big difference. So it, it's really dictated by these larger cultural trends based around technological advancement. You know, like better medical care, and that's why people live longer, um, better birth control, so people have smaller families. And those trends are not changing anytime soon. So thus, I would think that the slow life strategy indicators are also not going to change anytime soon. Gene, you recently published a few months ago, six months ago or so, a new book called Generations, and I'm sure you've updated the data. Uh, I'm kind of obsessed with your previous book, iGen. I want to share a statistic with you, a set of them, and have you talk about what is going on. Mm -hmm. You wrote um, that iGen high school seniors spent an average of two and a quarter hours a day texting 
on their cell phones. About two hours a day on the internet, uh, hour and a half each day on electronic gaming, and about a half an hour on video chat. This was from your recent book. That totals six hours a day with what you term new media. And that's just in their leisure time. And then you reported that eighth graders in middle school weren't far behind with about five hours a day on new media. I mean, think about that. I'm guessing that number has increased, not decreased. Talk about, as parents, as leaders, what we need to know about how the wave of generations coming in to the workplace, coming through our families, in our neighborhoods, how it's different than how we were raised, and what's going to change if not. So a recent Gallup poll of teens found that the average teen spends five hours a day just on social media apps. So it doesn't even include general internet use or video chat or gaming or any of the other things that we were just discussing. So they did include YouTube and TikTok in that total, but five hours a day, that's huge. Um, so comprehensive survey suggests the total number, eight or nine hours a day on, on screen activities. And some of those include TV and some don't, but for a lot of teens, traditional TV is not you know, what, what they're doing. They're on their phones a lot. And that crowds out time for other things. It crowds out time for sleep, for exercise, for seeing people in person. It's a really tough picture. And that's probably also why weights of depression and anxiety have increased so much. So when I wrote iGen, those increases in teen depression were really just beginning. I only had data up to 2015 at that point. So in generations, I was able to update everything to 2021 and teen depression doubled over that time period. And it doubled even before the pandemic. It had doubled already by 2019 and then it continued going up. So that mental health crisis that we have that is sometimes attributed to the pandemic started eight years before the pandemic with this shift toward more time on screens less time sleeping and less time with friends in person, which is not surprising because that's a terrible formula for mental health. So I, I wanna uh, pick your brain on this one as, as a doctor, obviously. Uh, you see so much demonizing of the mobile phone companies, the social media platforms, parents suing these social platforms because their child was bullied and in some many tragic cases, the child perhaps took their life. We'll talk about that in a few moments. It's, 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 beyond, it's unspeakable. And I read these articles and I think, or you can just parent your child. Now I recognize that that's easier said than done and everybody's in a different economic situation or a socioeconomic um, you know, pressures on them. I mean, but I'm a father with my wife and we live in the same house of three young boys that I mentioned are nine, 11 and 12. Sorry, nine, 12 and 13. They had birthdays recently. Uh, no phones on Sunday. The phone gets turned off Saturday night and they get it back Monday morning. Uh, no social media, none. They have, I think, YouTube kids, but I have a 13-year-old. The answer is absolutely not, no. Mm -hmm. There's no social media. It's not even a question. Dad, can I paraglide? No. Can I have Facebook? No. They know not to ask. And we also have them leave their phones at home when we go play tennis. They don't use their phones in the car. They're way to tennis. If we're going somewhere further, a different story, but we just parent. We, we, we say no. We tell them, everyone needs two books in the car. 
We're going to church. It's 40 minutes away. You need two books in the car. Not a squishy, two books. And so maybe that's super naive. Maybe that's really genius. Will you just riff on, not so much me as a parent, but just riff on what do parents need to do to thrive in a current world? You know, my children need some um, tech streams to be able to know, what, you know what's going on and where's the soccer game and who's hosting the Halloween party. What do you think are good, healthy boundaries that parents need to immediately employ to ensure that their children are connected and relevant and, and, and technically literate, but aren't being bullied? We'll talk about that. You know, the new bullying, like you say, is not kicking a kid into a locker. The new bullying is happening on Snapchat. Riff on that however you'd like. Yeah, so um, I think there's two truths here. So first is that parents are in an almost impossible position these days because you do not need parental permission to download a social media app, and those apps do not verify age. So right now the current regulation is that you're supposed to be 13 to have social media, but all you have to do is check a box or lie about your birthday and you're on. So there's 9- and 10-year-olds on TikTok on a regular basis. Same thing with, with Instagram and a lot of the other apps. So, um, Gene, can you stop there a second? Just yeah. for a second. Um, not in my house. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I had a parent. My, my children are, are fortunate to be enrolled in a private school um, that I fund by working very hard. And about a year ago, there was a young lady at my son's seventh grade class that sent an abhorrent text to my son, unconscionable. The mother was a physician, and I texted her. We had a conversation about it. And this was a very, very educated parent who's a physician that said to me on the phone, well, I don't know what to do. I mean, I can't take her phone away because she hides it from me in my room, in her room. And I kind of thought, what? What? My, my, a hammer to my boy's phone would have swiftly made contact with that screen had any parent ever called me and showed me. I read to her, I read to her the text that she sent my son. She was horrified. Her response to me was, well, I don't know what to do. I can't take her phone away because she hides it from me. And I thought, well, you walk down the stairs and you open her door and you take her phone away and you turn it off and you go put it at your office for a month. And if she behaves properly, she gets it back. I mean, I interjected you because I feel like there's an enormous abdication. Who's the parent? Where are the rules? Not in my home. Well, I agree, but let me give you an example. And I, I will get to what you can do, because there, there are fortunately things that you can do as a parent. And just for context, I have three kids myself, and they're 17, 14, and 11. So they are right in, in, uh, in this age group where, where this becomes a problem. So um, here's an example from... Um, of, of, of a, a set of parents who were very, very much on the ball. Um, but they, you know, they gave their kid a tablet. A lot of people give their kids tablets. And they told her, no social media, not in my house. But everybody she knew had it. So at 11, she downloaded Instagram and she hid it behind a calculator app on the tablet, which you can find out how to do easily by Googling it. So her parents didn't realize that she had Instagram and was, was spending hours and hours and hours a day on it until the school notified them that she was severely anorexic. And they found that out through a Instagram post that she had posted um, with thoughts of, of self-harm. These 
parents were middle school teachers. They knew exactly um, what the dangers were and they tried um, and made those rules to try to have that not happen, but she still ended up with a severe eating disorder. Um, so I, th I think this does happen even despite parents' best efforts. Kids are very smart. They find workarounds. Um, it, it, it is tough. With that said, I do 100% agree that you can't abdicate the responsibility that you do have. So a couple of things in this area. One thing that makes it easier is if your kids don't actually have a full-blown smartphone, if you give them a flip phone, or you give them a kid's phone like uh, Gab or Trumi or Pinwheel, where you can call and text and take pictures and that's it, because then there's no workarounds for getting social media or internet access. If you do give them a smartphone, put very heavy parental controls on it. So the phone doesn't work after bedtime. So it uh, you cannot download apps. We actually still have that for my 17-year-old, that she cannot download apps on her phone. She has to come to us, so it has to be a conversation. So at 17, maybe she does want social media. She hasn't asked for it yet, thankfully. But if she did want it, we would have to talk about it and discuss whether that was the best choice for her, uh, rather than her making a unilateral decision. So, and my younger two have those kids' phones where there's no ability to have social media on it at all. But it's really challenging because, and I know a lot of parents are in this boat too, my kids have school laptops. You cannot put parental controls on a school laptop. So they can, you know, open up pages and be on YouTube when they say they're doing their homework. And I think social media platforms are blocked on that, but I don't know because I can't get in there and look because it's a school laptop and they have to have that laptop to do their homework. So, and I, and I know I'm not the only one who's in that situation. I give a lot of talks at, at high schools and middle schools and I hear this from parents all the time. So it's, it's, it, it, it is difficult and it gets more difficult as your kids get older. Uh, doctor, talk about what's really going on with kids and social media and bullying and in many cases, you know, children that have been tormented into not just eating disorders and mental health issues, but actually taking their lives. We hear about these stories, and I think most of us probably think it's other kids. In fact, as I was just riveted listening to you, I'm thinking about how I'm gonna have my wife watch this unedited episode tonight, and then how we're gonna approach each of our sons, because I think my sons are following the rules they know there's a hammer. I actually have a hammer in our kitchen drawer that I show them. I mean, I mean and that sounds crazy. Not to hit them with, but if this and this happens, kill the this phone. hammer will crush that phone. Yes, that cost $1,000. I bought it. I own it. And it'll be gone for a year. I'll see you in a year. So I'm a little bit demonstrative, I know, but it kind of works to my advantage <laughs> most days. I want you to re reset everybody's um, attuneness, attention to what's really going on out there with the vast majority of teenagers so that parents like me, can have a sobering up today and maybe reassess their level of knowledge or naivete? Yeah, it, it is so tempting to think, oh, they'll be fine. Um, they'll be fine. No, they're, they're just talking to their friends. They're just doing this. They're, they're, good. they're a good kid. But it is really tough because these apps, um, this arena is so unregulated that, you know, and social media wasn't designed for kids or teens. It was designed for adults. And 
even then it was designed to be addictive and keep you coming back because that's how the companies make the most money. So they're doing everything that they can, these billion-dollar companies, to get people to spend a lot of time on their apps. Um, and that's especially true for kids and teens because it's even harder for them to opt out of that conversation with their friends if all their friends are on social media or to have that, that self-control. And But we need to do it. It is very, very important to do it because of all of the dangers online, which you might not think about. So for one thing, on social media, it's pretty easy for adults to contact teens. So I overheard a conversation one day of some 13-year-old girls, and they were all talking about how older guys had contacted them on Snapchat. And I mean, it, it was incredibly disturbing. And they said that the guys were saying things like, what are you doing right now? What are you wearing right now? And they were joking that, oh, I, was, I just said I'm on, I'm on the school bus because I'm 13. But we have so many guardrails in place to try to prevent this type of sexual predation in other contexts, yet it's pretty much wide open on social media. I mean, it's insane. Then there's all of the bullying that, you know, kids have always bullied each other, but now it can be 24-7. It can be really, really difficult to get away from. It's just this, you know, next level that people are, unfortunately, more willing to be cruel because when they're online, they can't see the look on the other person's face. You know, you don't have to bear the consequences of being cruel to someone because you just put it online, put it in text, put it on social media app, and you don't see how it has affected someone else. Then there's all of the issues I mentioned before about how these apps often take up so much of teens' time and attention, and then there's not a left, uh, enough left over for all of the other things they need to be doing. So that Gallup poll I mentioned that looked recently at teens out of a bunch of different activities. Social media was the only one that the vast majority of teens were spending two hours a day or more on about 78% spent that much time or more. And only about one fourth, about 25% spent two hours a day or more on homework. For example, only a tiny amount spent that much on chores. So you look at the way teens are spending their time, it's on these apps, which, okay, sometimes they're talking to their friends, but a lot of that is just time that they're never going to get back. It seems pretty simple to me, and I, of course, know it's not, but as a parent like you, right in the throes of it, I see it as my responsibility if I'm going to enable my child to have access to technology and pick up that end of the stick. I also have to pick up the other end of the stick, which is to make sure that there are guardrails, there are consequences, that I have to make sure that my child isn't just on the receiving end of being bullied, but that my child isn't actually delivering. Because I think everybody thinks it's everybody, other's kid, everybody else's kids are doing the bullying. When the fact is, today when I leave here, I will be doing a full sweep of my child's tablet and laptop and phone. Um, because that's my responsibility, is to not just pick up one end of the stick, but also to pick up the other end as well. I want to flip the conversation. Uh, 
it's easy to get into this, oh, isn't it an awful conversation? The new generation, they don't have any eye contact and they can't look you in the eye and they can't have a conversation. And there's the easy default for like my age and older to just demonize the younger generation. They have no skills. And the fact of the matter is it's the most educated, probably smartest generation coming up with yeah. their technical prowess and their ability to shortcut. And but they're also a kinder. You actually write about it, right? Why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and unprepared. You're showing that sexual activity is down and perhaps drug use is plateaued and drinking. There are some upsides to this generation yes. as well. Remind us that this isn't all bad, that these are yeah. a generation that has enormous creativity and innovation to offer. It isn't just about can they carry on a conversation. Right. And that is a challenge. Um, the social skills are, are, are certainly a challenge. But there are, there are so many big upsides. So one is around some of those things that you mentioned. This is a, a generation who is less likely to use and abuse alcohol. They are less likely to be sexually active at younger ages. They um, are physically safer. They're less likely to get into car accidents. Um, they are less willing to take risks. So if you work at a job where you have to convince young people to be safe, they'll actually be more receptive to that than previous generations were at the same age. They say on surveys they're, they're just not as interested in, in taking risks. That has a few downsides as well, but it's mostly an upside. Another really big upside of this generation is their kindness, their empathy that they are more likely than previous generations to say that they want a job that's directly helpful to other people. Entering college students are now more likely to say that they wanna help people who are in need of help. So that comes up a lot, that they um, just have this, this underlying concern for, for others, which is really heartening to see. Another advantage is compared to young employees, say, especially at 10, 15 years ago, they are less entitled, at least as college students, that uh, measures of narcissism as a personality trait actually declined starting about 15 years ago. So the biggest issue for Gen Z is not entitlement, it's these very high levels of depression. So that's still a challenge but then they are kinder and more considerate, at least from what we can see, um, and more willing to help others. I, I see it in my middle son, Smith. Smith is now 12. Uh, kind of classic middle child in terms of what the research shows. He's fairly quiet, uh, fun, a jock, great sports at sports. Um, and we were driving down Salt Lake City a few weeks ago where we live in Salt Lake and there was a large smokestack that was billowing out smoke. I think it's actually like a salt plant. I think they take salt and refine it into table salt. I'm not mistaken, it's immaterial. And I didn't even notice it. I mean, he looked at me from the back of the car and said, Dad, what is all that pollution coming out of those smokestacks? I hadn't even noticed it, I lived here for 30 years. I've seen that, but I'm so you know, immune to it now as a capitalist. <laughs> And I looked over and I said, oh, that's pollution. And, and I looked back in the rearview mirror and he had a look of horror on his eyes. Now he's not an especially sensitive kid. He's not an environmentalist. He's just a young boy finding his way in the world. And I could see in the rearview mirror, mirror, he was repulsed. He's not an environmentalist necessarily, 
But it was so interesting to notice that I didn't even see it. And he was stricken by the smokestack that was billowing filth into the year. We had a long story about you know, swapping credits and, and what the government does and shouldn't do and capitalism versus and jobs and protecting our environment. And I tried to keep it as sort of position agnostic just to kind of generate out of him where he was naturally leaning. He's a very kind boy. He's on his phone too much. Lots of sports, lots of outdoor activity. But, you know, winter's coming, and a lot of that stops, right? Um, soccer and, and other outdoor sports stop. And so I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion today with you. If anything, I'm going to become more vigilant, not as naive around where I think my boys are not spending time. I'm going to look behind the calculator app to see if Instagram is there. Couldn't fathom it. Couldn't fathom that the boys would cross me because they know, if they know anything with me, they know that I will follow up. They know the hammer is coming out. Uh, and I'm just crazy enough to take a hammer to a phone and tell them to see you in a year and make you a social pariah. Okay, uh, your newest book is called Generations. Talk a little bit about what some of the newest research and insights you share in your last release. Yeah, so it is about all six living American generations. So it's very much um, a, not just updated, but you know, much deeper dive um, that I've been previously able to do because most of my previous books were about one cultural trend or one generation, and this is about all six. So just able to, you know, get into so many more issues. And, you know, there were a number of big surprises. So one is that the narrative around millennials not doing well economically turns out not to be very well supported by the data. Median incomes adjusted for inflation are actually at all-time highs. Home ownership among millennials is on pace, um, really only a couple percentage points behind where boomers and Gen Xers were at the same age. Um, there is some really interesting trends in terms of mental health that there's been a big divergence in mental health by education and income level. So you might have heard about the divergence in mortality rates among middle-aged people um, by education level. So the economists Anne Case and Angus Deaton found that, and that got a lot of attention. And they found that most of those deaths are what they call deaths of despair. So that got me interested. Well, is there a psychological equivalent to that? And it turns out there is. There used to be very little difference in rates of unhappiness and depression by income level and education level. And then starting with the boomers and continuing with the younger generations, that diverged. So now there's a much bigger gap. I think it explains a lot about our current cultural and political climate, that there is not just a gap in terms of economic circumstances between, say, those with and without a four-year college degree, but there's also a huge divide in happiness and in depression. Um, one last thing, uh, I did look at work attitudes. The last chapter of the book is um, about the future. We can find out, you know, based on these these big surveys, especially of young people, to try to get uh, a little bit of a forecast of what's to come. And work-life balance, not surprisingly, does come up quite a bit. 
And I just um, analyzed the 2022 data for one of the big surveys that I work with of 18 year olds. And it turns out work ethic just plummeted in 2021 and 2022. I just published a Substack on this and it had been reversing. So work ethic had been declining among 18 year olds, say willing to work overtime, thinking work's a central part of your life, things like that. And it actually had come back in the transition between millennials and Gen Z. It had started to rise. And then between 2020 and 2022, in just two years, it just fell off a cliff. So there's something really fundamental that's changing in the workforce right now around work ethic. You know, those viral TikToks on quiet quitting might have been on to something. Um, and I don't think that those TikToks caused this trend because the trend was began in 2021 before those TikToks came out. Um, and then, and, you know, the other question is, is this just Gen Z where we're seeing this? Is it just young people or is it people of all ages? And it it might, it might be both. It might be both something that's affecting the workplace as a whole, but perhaps young people in particular, that there's a lot of pessimism out there and a lot of ideas of, um, well, the system's rigged anyway, so why work hard? Why try hard? I think that's one of our biggest challenges for leaders, for managers, as a society, even for parents, is to counter the very high levels of pessimism among young people right now. And they are just historically really, really high. You expect young people to be optimistic and Gen Z is not. And that I think has a big influence over um, our culture and our, and our politics and our workplaces. Gina, mindful of our time, I wanna ask you one more question on this topic. What would you say to the millions of leaders, business leaders, inside organizations that are watching or listening to our conversation today that are confused, they're, not, they're frustrated, they're not quite sure how to lead post-pandemic in a, in a whole new world with a whole new generation coming in that may have different values than they do. Not worse, not better, just different values. They have different views on their role in the world, they're stewards of the world, how they view their own priorities in life. Are there any kind of sweeping bits of advice you would say to leaders to say, think about it this way, and here's, here's what you might say or do or think to be a better lead leader to these new generations in the workplace that probably are fundamentally different than they are? Yeah. Well, you know, understanding and empathy is always a fantastic place to start. And so in this arena, what that means is learning, uh, you know, about what the generational differences are um, from, you know, good solid sources rather than just rumors, say. Uh, and because that was really my goal in, in writing Generations was to help the generations understand each other better because we have seen you know, really big cultural changes and generational shifts. And there's a lot of leaders who are looking at, especially Gen Z coming up and saying, man, I just don't understand where they're coming from because that's challenging you know, when they have had such a different upbringing and such different experiences as teens and young adults um, compared to Gen Xers and boomers and even millennials. So I think that's absolutely the place to start is just you know, read, 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 um, and listen and find out, you know, what their viewpoints are. Because, of course, there's going to be differences by individuals. You know, not everybody is going to be average. Um, but with that said, 
just taking that perspective that they did grow up differently than you of one of the phrases that I really like is saying, I want you to be successful. So using that as a frame for feedback, even criticism of, I am telling you this because I want to help you grow. The good news is Gen Z responds well to mentoring. You know, they're fairly close to their parents, definitely closer than Gen Xers were, especially at at uh, the young adult ages. So they are open to this idea of mentoring from older people and getting guidance, but that's what they want. They want someone to be on their side, someone they feel is, is guiding them toward more success because they have a lot of anxiety. And we, you know, we know that from lots and lots of, of, of solid data that anxiety and depression is, is higher. And sometimes the way that that comes out can look like entitlement but it really often is rooted much more in anxiety. They do want to do a good job. It's just sometimes they don't know how and they need more careful instruction to be able to do that because they don't have as much experience with independence and decision-making. Dr. Jean Twenge, you are a professor of psychology at San Diego, State, San Diego State University. You've authored hundreds of scientific articles, seven books and textbooks. Your research has been covered by every major print and television, newspaper, magazine, radio, media around the world. Uh, we appreciate your time today. I will be a better parent, as will my wife, as a result of reading your books, including your newest book, Generations. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much for having me on. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>